Chapter 10 of Afloat on the Ohio A Historical Pilgrimage of a Thousand Miles in a Skiff From Redstone to Cairo This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Teresa Sheridan Afloat on the Ohio by Reuben Gold Thwaites Chapter 10. Cliff Dwellers on Long Bottom, Pomeroy Bend, Letarts Island and Rapids, Game in the Early Day, Rainy Weather, in a Cracker Home. Letarts Island, Tuesday, May 15th. After we had gone to bed last night, we in the tent, the doctor and the pilgrim under the fly, which serves as a porch roof, the heavenly floodgates lifted. The rain, coming in sheets, beat a fierce tattoo on the tightly stretched canvas, and visions of a sudden rise in the fickle river were uppermost in our dreams. Everything about us was sopping at daybreak, but the sun rose clear and warm from a bed of eastern clouds, and the midnight gale had softened to a gentle breeze. Palisades were frequent today, we stopped just below camp, at an especially picturesque Ohio hamlet, Longbottom, 207 miles, where the dozen or so cottages are built close against the bald rock, clambering over great water-worn boulders at the river's brink. The doctor and I made our way up through a dense tangle of willows and poison ivy and grapevines, emerging upon the country road which passes at the foot of this row of modern cliff dwellings. For the most part, little gardens with neat palings run down from the cottages to the road. One sprawling log house, fairly embowered in vines, and overtopped by the palisade rising sheer for thirty feet above its back door, looked in this setting for all the world like an alpine chalet lacking only stones on the roof to complete the picture. I took a Kodak shot at this, also at a group of tousle-headed children at the door of a decrepit shanty, built entirely within a crevice of the rock. Their Hiberian mother, with one hand holding an apron over her head, and the other shielding her eyes, shrilly crying to a neighborhood cliff-dweller, Miss McCarthy! Miss McCarthy, there's a feller here, a photographin' all the people in the bottom. Come quick. Then they eagerly pressed around me, Germans and Irish, big and little, women and children mostly, asking for a view of the picture, which I gave all in turn by letting them peep into the ground glass finder, a pretty picture they said it was, with the colors all in, and wonderfully like, though a wee bit small. Speaking of color, we are daily struck with the brilliant hues in the workaday dresses of women and children seen along the river. Red calico predominance, but blues and yellows and even greens are seen, brightly splashing the somber landscape. After Long Bottom, we enter upon the south-sweeping Pomeroy Bend of the Ohio, commencing at Murraysville, 208 miles, and ending at Pomeroy, 
247 miles. It is of itself a series of smaller bends, and, as we twist about upon our course, the wind strikes us successfully on all quarters, sometimes giving the doctor a chance to try his sail, which he raises on the slightest provocation, but at times agreeably ruffling the surface that would otherwise reflect the glowing sun like a mirror. The sloping margins of the rich bottoms are now often cultivated almost to the very edge of the stream, with a line of willow trees left as a protecting fringe. Farmers doing this take a gambling risk of a summer rise. Where the margins have been left untouched by the plow, there is a dense mass of vegetation, sycamores, big of girth and towering to a hundred feet or more, abound on every hand. The willows are phenomenally rapid growers, and in all available space is the rank, thick, standing growth of an annual locally styled horseweed, which rears a cane-like stalk full 18 or 20 feet high. It has now attained but 4 or 5 feet, but the dry stalks of last year's growth are everywhere, showing what a formidable barrier to landing these giant weeds must be in midsummer. We chose for a camping place Lettarts Island, 232 miles, on the West Virginia side, not far below Millwood, from the head where our tent is pitched on a sandy knoll thick grown to willows, a long gravel spit runs far over toward the Ohio shore. The West Virginia channel is narrow, slow and shallow, that between us and Ohio has been lessened by the island to half its usual width, and the current sweeps by at a six-mile gait, in which the doctor and I found it difficult to keep our footing while having our customary evening dip. Our island is two long, forested humps of sand connected by a stretch of gravel beach, giving every evidence of being submerged in times of flood, Everywhere are chaotic heaps of driftwood, many cords in extent. Derelict trees are lodged in the tops of the highest willows and maples. Ghostly giants sprawling in the moonlight. There is an abandon of vegetable debris. Layer after layer laid down in sandy coverlids. Wild grasses which flourish on all these flooded lands here attain enormous size. Dispensing with our cots for the nonce, we have spread our blankets over heaps of dried grass pulled from the monster turfs of last year's growth. The Ohio is capable of raising giant floods. It is still falling with us, but there are signs at hand, beyond the slight sprinkle which cooled the air for us at bedtime, of rainy weather after the long drought. When the feeders in the Alleghenies begin to swell, we shall perch high o' nights. Near Cheshire O, Wednesday, May 16th. The fine current at the island gave us a noble start this morning. The river soon widens, but Letarts Falls, a mile or two below, continue the movement, and we went fairly spinning on our way. These so-called falls, rapids rather, long possessed the imagination of early travelers. Some of the chroniclers have, 
while describing them, indulged in flights of fancy. They are of slight consequence, however, even at this slow stage of water, save to the careless canoeist who has no experience in rapid water, well strewn with sunken boulders. The scenery of the locality is wild and somewhat impressive. The Ohio bank is steep and rugged, abounding in narrow little terraces of red clay, deeply gullied and dotted with rough, mean shanties. It all had a forbidding aspect when viewed in the blinding sun, but before we had passed, an intervening cloud cast a deep shadow over the scene, and, softening the effect, made the picture more pleasing. Krogan was at Lethart, 1765, on one of his land-viewing trips for the Ohio Company, and tells us that he saw a vast migrating herd of buffalo cross the river here. In the beginning of colonization in this valley, buffalo and elk were to be seen in herds of astonishing size. Traces of their well-beaten paths through the hills and toward the salt licks of Kentucky and Illinois were observable until within recent years. Gordon, an early traveler down the Ohio, 1766, speaks of great herds of buffalo. We observed on the beaches of the river and islands into which they come for air, and coolness in the heat of the day. He commenced his raids on them a hundred miles below Pittsburgh. Hutchins, 1778, says, The whole country abounds in bears, elks, buffalo, deer, turkeys, etc. Bears, panthers, wolves, eagles, and wild turkeys were indeed very plenty at first, but soon became extinct. The theory is advanced by Dr. Doddridge in his Notes on Virginia, that hunters' dogs introduced hydrophobia among the wolves, and this ridded the country of them sooner than they would naturally have gone, but they were still so numerous in 1817 that the traveler Palmer heard them nightly, barking on both banks. Venomous serpents were also numerous in pioneer days and stayed longer. The story is told of a tumulus up toward Moundsville that abounded in snakes, particularly rattlers. The settlers thought to dig them out, but they came to such a mass of human bones that the plan was abandoned. Then they instituted a blockade by erecting a tight board fence around the mound and, thus entrapping the reptiles, extirpated the colony in a few days. Paraquets were once abundant west of the Alleghenies up to the southern shore of the Great Lakes, and great flocks haunted the salt springs, but today they may be found only in the middle southern states. There were, in a state of nature, no crows, blackbirds, or songbirds in this valley. They followed in the wake of the colonist. The honeybee came with the white man, or rather, just preceded him. Rats followed the first settlers, then opossums and fox squirrels still later. It is thought, too, that the sandhill and whooping cranes and the great blue herons, which we daily see in their stately flight, are birds of these latter days, when the neighborhood of man has frightened away the enemies 
which once kept them from thriving in the valley. Turkey buzzards appear to remain alone of the ancient birds. The earliest travelers note their presence in great flocks, and today there are few vistas open to us, without from one to dozens of them wheeling about in midair, seeking what they may devour. Public opinion in the valley is opposed to the wanton killing of these scavengers, so useful in a climate as warm as this. Three miles below Letard's Rapids is the motley settlement of Antiquity O, a long row of cabins and cottages nestled at the base of a high, vine-clad palisade, similar to that which yesterday we visited at Longbottom. Some of these cliff dwellings are picturesque, some exhibit the prosperity of their owners, but many are squalid. At the water's edge is that which has given its name to the locality, an ancient rock, which once bore some curious Indian carving. Hall, 1820, found only one figure remaining, a man in a sitting posture, making a pipe. Today, even thus much has been largely obliterated by the elements, but antiquity itself is not quite dead. There is a shipyard here and a sawmill in active operation, besides the ruins of two others. We also passed Racine, 240 miles, another Ohio town, a considerable place, no doubt, although only the tops of the buildings were, from the river level, to be seen above the high bank. These, and an enticing view up the wharf street. Of more immediate interest, just then, were the heavens, now black and threatening. Putting in hurriedly to the West Virginia shore, we pitched tent on a shelving clay beach, shielded by the ever-present willows, and in five minutes had everything under shelter. With a rumble and bang, and a great flurry of wind, the thunderstorm broke upon us in full fury. There had been no time to run a ditch around the tent, so we spread our cargo atop of the cots. The boy engineered riverward the streams of water which flowed in beneath the canvas. W, ever practical, caught rain from the dripping fly and did the family washing, while the doctor and I prepared a rather patsy lunch. An hour later we bailed out Pilgrim, and once more ventured upon our way. It is a busy district between Racine and Sheffield, 251 miles. For 11 miles, upon the Ohio bank, there are few breaks between the towns. Racine, Syracuse, Minersville, Pomeroy, Coalport, Middleport, and Sheffield. Coal mines and salt works abound, with the other industries interspersed, and the neighborhood appears highly prosperous. Its metropolis is Pomeroy, in shape a shoestring town, much of it not over two blocks wide, and stretching along for two miles at the foot of high palisades. West Virginia is not far behind, in enterprise, with the salt-work towns of New Haven, Hartford, and Mason City, bespeaking in their names a Connecticut ancestry. The afternoon sun gushed out 
and the face of nature was cleanly beautiful, as, leaving the convolutions of the Pomeroy Bend, we entered upon that long river sweep to the south by southwest, which extends from Pomeroy to the Big Sandy, a distance of 68 miles. A mile or two below Cheshire O, 256 miles, we put in for the night on the West Virginia shore. There is a natural pier of rock ledge above that a sloping beach of jagged stone, and then the little grassy terrace which we have made our home. Searching for milk and eggs, I walked along a railway track, and then up through a cornfield to a little log farmhouse, whose broad porch was shingled with shakes and shaded by a lusty grapevine. Fences, houses, and outbuildings have been newly whitewashed, and there was all about an uncommon air of neatness. A stout little girl of eleven or twelve met me at the narrow gate opening through the garden palings. It may be because a gypsying trip like this roughens one in many ways, for man, with long living near to nature's heart, becomes of the earth, earthy, that she at first regarded me with suspicious eyes, and with one hand resting gracefully on her hip, parlayed over the gate as to what price I was paying in cash for eggs and milk, and where I hailed from. With her wealth of blonde hair done up in a saucy knot behind, her round, honest face, her lips thick and parted over pearly teeth, her nose saucily retrousse, and her flashing outspoken blue eyes, this barefooted child of nature had a certain air of authority, a consciousness of power, which made her womanly beyond her years. She must have seen that I admired her, this little cracker queen, in her clean but tattered calico frock, for her mood soon melted, and with much grace she ushered me within the house, calling Sam, an eight-year-old, to keep the gentleman company. She prettied excused herself and scampered off up the hillside in search of the cows. A barefooted, loose-jointed, gaunt, sandy-haired, freckled, open-eyed youngster is Sam. He came lounging into the room and, taking my hat, hung it on a peg above the fireplace, then, dropping into a big rocking chair, with his muddy legs hanging over an arm, at once, with a curious, old-fashioned air, began keeping company by telling me of the new litter of pigs with as little diffidence as though I were an old neighbor who had dropped in on the way to the crossroads. And there thought new Shanghai rooster, Mr. Ain't he a beauty? He cost a dollar. He did a dollar in silver, sir. There was no difficulty in drawing Sam out. He is frankness itself. What was he going to make of himself? Well, he lowed. He wanted to be either a locomotive engineer or a steamboat captain. Hadn't made up his mind which. But whatever a boy wants to be, he will be, said Sam, with the decided tone of a man of the world who had seen things. 
I asked Sam what the attractions were in the life of an engine driver. He lowed that they went so fast through the world and saw so many different people, and in their lifetime served on different roads, maybe, and surely they must meet with some excitement. And in that of a steamboat captain? Oh, now you're talking, mister. A right smart business, that. O bossin' o people around. A seein' o the world and nothing all to do. Now that's right smart, I take it. It was plain where his heart lay. He saw the steamers pass the farm daily, and once he had watched one unload at Point Pleasant. Well, that was the life for him. Sam will have to be up and doing if he is to be the monarch of a sternwheeler on the Ohio. But many another cracker boy has attained this exalted station, and Sam is of the sort to win his way. Soon the kind came lowing into the yard, and my peaked young friend who had met me at the gate stood in the doorway talking with us both, while their brother Charlie, an awkward self-conscious lad of ten, took my pail and milked it the required two quarts. It is a large square room where I was so agreeably entertained. The well-chinked logs are scrupulously washed. The parental bed, with gay pillow shams bought from a peddler, occupies one corner. A huge brick fireplace opens black and yawning into the base of a great cobblestone chimney reared against the house without, after a fashion of the country, on pegs about, hang the best clothes of the family, while a sewing machine, a deal table, a cheap little mirror as big as my palm, a few unframed chromos, and a gaudy family record chart hung in an old looking-glass frame, which appropriate holes for tin types of father, mother, and children complete the furnishings of the apartment, which is parlor, sitting room, dining room, and bedroom all in one. My little queen was evidently proud of her throne room, and noted with satisfaction my interest in the family record. When I had paid her for butter and eggs at retail rates, she threw in an extra egg, and despite my protest, would have Charlie take the pail out to the cow, for an extra squirt or two for good measure. I was bidding them all goodbye, and the queen was pressing me to come again in the morning for more stuff. F ye load, you want any? when the mother of the little brood appeared from over the fields, where she had been to carry water to her lord, a fair, intelligent, fine-looking woman, but barefooted like the rest, from her neck behind dangled a red sunbonnet, and a sunny-haired child of five was in her arms. Sort of weak in her lungs, poor thing, she sadly said, as I snapped my fingers at the smi smiling tot. I tarried a moment with the good mother, as, sitting upon the porch, she serenely smiled upon her children, whose eyes were now lit with responsive love, and I wondered if there were not some romance hidden here, whereby a dash of gentler blood had through this sweet-tempered woman been infused into the coarse clay of the bottom. End of chapter 10 by Teresa Sheridan